Here in the final week of Jesus' life, the religious leaders have conspired to kill him. And so we'll now listen to Jesus' final public teaching. He will teach his disciples in private in the coming days, but this is the final statement of the Savior to the crowds, a challenge to their unbelief and a call for them to believe. Listen as I read John chapter 12. I'm going to begin at verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day, for I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Let's bow in prayer as we've heard the reading of God's Word. Glorious God in heaven, we thank you for the ministry of Jesus, our Savior, for his clarity of purpose, his determined ministry which takes him to the cross. Lord, I pray that in the forgiveness of Jesus, in his propitiation, the fact that, that he pays the full penalty for our sins, that he fulfills the, law, the, the purposes of your law, that he takes your wrath upon himself. Lord, that in the ministry of Jesus, we would find forgiveness. Lord, for those that, that hear these words and yet, yet think, well, that, that just can't be right. It can't be that forgiveness is so free. Lord, let them see the glory of your grace. For those that doubt the truthfulness of your word, confront their, their sin, confront their unbelief that they may be given the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus, our Savior. Lord, for those of us who follow Christ, let us be bold in our testimony about him. Turn our hearts from the love of the things in this world, the, the opinions of others, to love you more fully and completely. Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. 
One of the most powerful scenes in all of Scripture is described by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is in the, the throne room of heaven itself. He sees the angels giving praise to God, and, and what does he hear them crying out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in the throne room of, of heaven, Isaiah feels and experiences and sees and smells as smoke fills the room with the glory and the power and the holiness of God. So that Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, I'm ruined from a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And yet in that throne room, miraculously, God forgives a sinner. The Lord then calls him to be a prophet, to preach the message. God asks the question, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here I am. Send me, volunteers the prophet. God forgives the prophet Isaiah and calls him to preach. And so, so actually, let's turn there to Isaiah 6. And, and I'm beginning in Isaiah 6. We're, we're turning to Isaiah because that's where John begins today, in the ministry and prophecy of Isaiah. Look at the message that Isaiah is called to preach. After having seen the holiness of God, after receiving forgiveness from God, we expect that Isaiah will be given a message of forgiveness. Isaiah will be sent into the, the nation of Israel saying, look at me, look at what God has done for me, look at the forgiveness I've received. You too can receive God's forgiveness. But after Isaiah volunteers to go, look at what God tells him to say. This is Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. Isaiah chapter 6. God tells him, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their eyes dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. It's at this point that we expect Isaiah might think, hey, can I take back that, you know, could we, could we send somebody else? Could somebody else be given the message to go and tell people, you're never going to believe, you're never going to see because of your sin. Your sin judges you and condemns you. And so, so Isaiah is smart enough in the throne room of heaven to understand a command from God is not something that that can be set aside, and so he doesn't ask, God, send somebody else, or God, could I have a different message? What does he ask? In Isaiah 6, 11, he, Isaiah said, for how long, O Lord? Okay, I'll go, I'll preach this message, but, but how long? When can I get to the good part? You're sending me with judgment. You people have eyes, but you cannot see. You have ears, but you cannot hear. You have hearts, but you do not understand. When can I get to the good part? where people understand your forgiveness and can turn and receive your love. How long, O oh Lord? And he answered, 
until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Isaiah, even before he goes to preach the gospel, was warned in advance by God that the people would not believe. And the Apostle John explains to us that this was Jesus' ministry as well. Because if you turn back to John chapter 12, we're told that that the fact that people would not believe even the miraculous signs of Jesus was fulfilling what Isaiah had told. You can see in John 12, verse 40, the quote which came from Isaiah 6 in the call of Isaiah, that God has blinded the eyes of the people, deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Verse 41 explains that Isaiah spoke this message not only about his own ministry. Yes, that was exactly what he would do. He would preach the gospel and people would reject God. But, but Isaiah was also looking forward in history to the ministry of Jesus. That it's Jesus' glory that he was speaking about. That when he saw the, the glory of God in the throne of throne room of heaven, that was the glory of Jesus himself. When he was sent with a message which would harden people's hearts, that was the same ministry that Jesus would have. That many who hear the message of Jesus will not believe. And that's not a surprise. And in some sense, John is, is probably speaking to himself here. As a disciple who's now invested three years of his life in the, in the work of Jesus, and yet the crowds are turning against Jesus. The Sanhedrin is conspiring to kill him. Surely this wasn't what was meant to happen, Jesus. When you preach good news, people should receive it. And yet John, through the Holy Spirit, tells us, no, this was to fulfill the ministry, the very words that Isaiah had revealed to us. And you see back in verse 38, there's, a, there's another passage in the book of Isaiah quoted, not just the throne room scene of Isaiah 6, but, but maybe your footnote explains it to you. It's Isaiah 53. Now, if I ask you to name some passages or some phrases from the book of Isaiah, well, if you didn't jump to Isaiah 6, you'd probably go to Isaiah 53. It's the ministry of the suffering servant, the one whom God would send to die in the place of sinners. And yet even there, Jesus, the suffering servant who would be rejected by men, is glorified by God. The question is still, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the miracles of Jesus reveal the power the might, the very arm of God at work in the world, and yet the people say, no, 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 I won't believe. Their hearts are hardened, and then God brings judgment upon them. Now, to start a sermon with, with so much judgment might, might cause us to step back and say, well, wait a second. When I, when I look at the passage here, these quotations from from John, yes, it brings the expectation that people wouldn't believe, but it also explains that it's because God blinded their eyes. 
that God deadened their hearts. So isn't all of this God's fault? I mean, if God is the one who deadened hearts, well, then shouldn't God be blamed for the fact that people don't believe? Isn't unbelief really then God's doing? And actually, this isn't a question raised only by this passage. This is an objection repeatedly raised by those that reject Christianity throughout the centuries. Essentially, it's God's fault for creating a world filled with evil. But that objection, let me push a little bit, that objection isn't as strong as it first appears. God is blamed for evil so that God can be rejected. But philosopher John Gray points out the problem when someone tries to blame God. If God takes the blame and you push him then off the stage, well then how do you now explain evil? He asks, if you remove God, is it humankind that is evil? I mean, the, the philosopher John Gray's question is a serious one because he doesn't write as someone trying to defend Christianity. He identifies himself as an atheist. But he says this, this answer to the problem of evil, of blaming God and then pushing God off to the side, means you're still left with evil. You haven't actually gotten rid of evil in this philosophical scenario because you're still left with evil people. And then he's even willing to admit, even as an atheist, and you're still left with explaining why evil is evil and why you feel that evil is evil, why you respond to it as evil. Why isn't it just existence? Why do we instinctively feel that it's bad? I mean, do you understand the atheist argument? The normal assumption of people is, well, I can blame God for all that's gone wrong, and then I don't have to worry about it. But if you blame God and reject God, and God's not on the stage, well, then you're still left with the problem of evil. You haven't actually solved anything, and you still need an explanation. See, and I I would argue, and I I think the Apostle John is arguing here, that Christianity is better at offering an explanation for evil than any atheist could possibly offer. But the Apostle John doesn't remove God, but he also doesn't blame God. Yes, God hardens hearts that were already hard. Yes, God causes causes ignorance in those that had already rejected the message, that had already turned away. God condemns the guilty, but the guilt remains on the sinner because God ends up giving people what they really wanted in the first place. I mean, that's John's argument here. When, When he says in verse 42 of John 12, that there were some who believed, even among the leaders, but, but they, they wouldn't make their confession public. Why? Verse 43, for they loved praise from men more than praise for God. See, they're worried about what other people will think. But do you see what John is saying? The hardening of their hearts is giving them the very desires of their hearts. They've, they've hardened their hearts against God, but but they're not loveless people. They love the things of this world. They love what the reputation can offer. And so Christianity, John is arguing here, provides not only an explanation for evil, but ultimately provides a solution to evil. 
Because God provides a way for the repentant, those who admit their sin, to find forgiveness. And yet when John talks not just about those that have fully rejected Jesus, but those who have sort of taken a halfway step toward him, I think there's a challenge to us. Those that will privately say, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus, he's great, I love him, I mean, all that good stuff. But then publicly, well, you know, I mean, I don't want to be associated with him. I mean, you, I mean, you know, I mean, to be called a Christian, I mean, you know all the terrible things that go along with that. And often, it's those who have the greatest of reputations that have the most to lose. He's, John is challenging those who love praise from men more than praise from God. And who's he talking about? These Pharisees, these religious leaders, these men of standing and reputation. See, they have a lot to lose if they come out on Jesus' side. We, we've read already in this gospel that they could be removed from their synagogues, which would mean their income is gone. They're religious teachers. They're now being pushed aside. Their, their reputation in the community the, the fall for them is, is too great for them. They, they love the praise from men more than praise from God. I mean, what about you? Do you love the reputation that you've, fought, you've, you've created for yourself? Do you love the wealth that you've accumulated more than you love Jesus? Or maybe you would, would put yourself in the position of those who, who don't yet believe? Is your reputation keeping you from putting your trust in Jesus Christ? Do you refuse to believe because it would cost too much? And actually, the greater your reputation, I, I acknowledge, the, the more you have to lose. But in exchange for the praise of men, and setting that aside, what do you receive? Praise from God a welcome in heaven, eternal life, forgiveness of sins. Or maybe you're a Christian, but you're like these Pharisees who in private will talk about Jesus. I mean, Sunday morning is a great time to talk about Jesus. I mean, we're safe in here. It's people who believe with you. But, but on Monday morning, well, there's very little of Jesus in your life. Because what if your coworkers found out that you believed that? What would they think of you? I mean, you've heard it from your family members before. Can you tolerate that, that dent to your reputation? I mean, maybe you think, if, if I just get, get one more rung up the ladder, then I'll be in a secure place, and, and then I could be more public. Or, or maybe, maybe when, I, when I switch careers, or, or maybe when... Is your fear of rejection keeping you from announcing the good news of salvation in Jesus the Savior? So John sets the context for us here, a context of unbelief as Jesus steps forward for his last public sermon in the Gospel of John. And, and, and it's here that Jesus, we're told in verse 44, cries out. I mean, that's, this is, this is a, a message that demands to be heard. But here, Jesus announces judgment. He says, the, first, the, the, the one who believes in him, verse 44, believes not only in him, but in God the Father, the one who sent him. And to, to see Jesus, 
is to see the mighty arm of God, to see the work of Jesus, to see the miracles of Jesus, is to see the Father in heaven. So Jesus is calling people to believe. He's telling them that that they can step out of darkness into the light of salvation. If they put their trust in him, he says in verse 46, I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. But now the warning comes, this warning of judgment in verse 47. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, and so that means more than just like understanding them cognitively, it means actually believing them and doing something with them. See, because Christianity is not merely a, a list of assertions to believe. It's a path to be followed. It's a way to be journeyed. It's, it's obedience to God after you receive the gift of salvation. As for the person, verse 47, who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world but to save it. Wait, wait. Jesus, you're saying you're not here to judge? But this whole message feels pretty judgy, right? I mean, right after he says in verse 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save it, he says in verse 48, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. I'm not here to judge, but you will be judged. I mean, is is Jesus, like, is he confused about his ministry? Because multiple times in John's gospel, he'll say explicitly, I'm here to judge. Like, this message is a dividing message. Either you believe in Jesus or you go to hell. I mean, that's, that's as clear. If you, if you put your trust in Jesus, then you, then you receive salvation. But if not, you're condemned to hell. There's, there's no middle ground with Jesus. In, in John chapter 12, our own chapter, we read this last week. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus said, now is the time for judgment on this world. If, if we go back a few chapters to John chapter 9, after Jesus had healed a man who had been born blind. In John 9, 39, we read, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Back in chapter 5, Jesus says in John 5, 22, that the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So how can Jesus, having repeatedly said, I'm here, for judgment, right now is the moment of judgment. I stand before you as a judge. How can he in, in John 12 say, well, I'm, I don't judge the one who doesn't keep my word, for I did not come to judge the world but to save it. Well, first of all, it's not that John is confused or that Jesus is confused and like somehow this slipped through the editor's cracks, that, that John made all of this up and then nobody noticed that Jesus sometimes says, I'm here to judge, and then sometimes says, I'm not here to judge. Because actually, each of, the, each of the times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I'm not here to judge, he sets it in the context of judgment. Right in this chapter, in verse 47, for I did not come to judge, verse 48, but judgment is here. When, when we read back in chapter 3, John 3.16, now that's the most famous verse, not just in John's Gospel, but maybe in the whole of your Bible, we read, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The next verse, John three seventeen. for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but to save the world through him. So Jesus didn't come to judge or condemn, but to bring salvation. But John 3.17 is followed, and this is complicated, by John 3.18, which says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So Jesus says, my primary purpose isn't to bring judgment, but salvation. But if you don't believe, you stand condemned already. In, in John chapter 8, Jesus in John 8, 15, he says, when, when talking to those who question who he is, he says in John 8, 15, you judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. So I'm not here to judge. But then it's followed in the very next verse. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. So every time in John's gospel that, that John says, I'm not here to judge, he's, it's in the context of judgment. So he doesn't mean it ultimately he's not here to judge. He means his primary purpose, the first thing he's here to do, is not bring judgment because you stand judged already by your sin. The first thing he's here to do is offer salvation, to provide salvation. Now, if you won't receive that gift, then you will be judged. He's also saying he doesn't stand alone in, as if this is his own message that he made up as a mere prophet wandering through Galilee and Judea. He says, I'm here on the authority of the Father in heaven. And so when Jesus says, I'm not here to judge, he means, well, first, I'm going to offer you salvation. But if you reject it, you'll be judged. And I do this not on my own authority, but on the authority of the Father in heaven. Because Jesus' very presence brings judgment. God has stepped out of the throne room filled with the smoke of his holiness where the threshold itself shakes and steps down onto earth. The holiness of God, the power of God, the majesty of God standing right in front of the people. Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. And yet they still reject him. He comes as the judge, but he comes as a judge who offers forgiveness. His primary goal is to announce salvation. But to those who persist in their unbelief, this salvation becomes a message of judgment. Because right now is the time of judgment. But if you think you won't be judged, then you stand condemned already. And yet because Jesus' primary purpose is not judgment but salvation, the first thing he's here to do is offer salvation— when we read the words that, that he has blinded the eyes and deadened their hearts, and yet even still, Jesus offers us hope. We read it in verse 46, I've come into the world as a light so that you won't be left in darkness. We see it in verse 50 as he concludes his public teaching. I know that this command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. The last thing he offers the crowds who are rejecting him is eternal life. Jesus says that this command, the command of God, leads to eternal life. The command of God for you, for me, for those of us listening to this message, the command for us is to believe in Jesus, to turn from our selfish pride and humble ourselves, to turn from the love of men and to receive the embrace of God's love, to trust the Savior who has come. 
But what does the command of God mean for Jesus? Remember, this is Jesus' final public sermon. Yes, we still have chapters of, of private instruction to his 12 disciples, but this is the last time he'll preach to the crowds. Because what does the command of God require of Jesus? The cross. Jesus willingly goes to the cross so that we might have eternal life. He is the suffering servant promised by Isaiah who reveals to us the power of God over sin. Jesus' announcement of judgment comes with the hope of forgiveness for everyone who will turn from sin and trust in Jesus. And yet, do you harden your heart at God's warning of judgment? I know it can be a little unnerving for wedding guests to be stuck at the table with the pastor. At a wedding rehearsal, Laura and I were seated with uh, the family of the groom, a family we'd never met before that day. Now, several members of the family were openly hesitant to talk about anything religious. I mean, they wanted to, like, turn the conversation constantly away from, from anything. Like, we, let's talk about anything but God. But the sister-in-law who was sitting at the table was curious. She wanted to know if I was really a pastor. Like, did you just go online and get ordained, like, pay for a certificate so you could officiate this? Or, like, are you actually a pastor at a church? And when I explained, when, when she was satisfied with my credentials, then she decided to share her story. Now, Laura and I quickly realized this story wasn't being shared primarily for us, but for her family members sitting around the table. This woman had grown up in a non-Christian religious tradition, but she wasn't observant in her faith. She says that a friend had, had invited her to church, and so she'd gone to church a couple times, and so now if people asked her her religious background, she would say, well, I guess I'm a Christian because I've been to church. One evening, she says, she stopped to get gas for her car. A stranger asked her if she was a Christian. So to make polite, small talk, she answered, yeah, I, I go to church with a friend. I'm a Christian. The stranger looked at her, dressed up for a night of clubbing in her South Florida home, and said, honey, I can tell from what you're wearing, you are not a Christian. Now, she was furious. Who was he to judge her? What did he really know about her? Now, to be fair, she has a point. I mean, this, I think, actually a pretty terrible way to try and share the gospel with someone, to just flat-out condemn a stranger at a gas station for what she's wearing. I don't think the message really captured the heart of God's forgiveness, but thankfully, God was already at work in her life. As she mauled over the stranger's harsh judgment later that week, she decided to listen to a sermon her friend had passed along. She stand condemned before God for her sin, but that Jesus, the Savior, was willing to die in her place to offer her forgiveness. That she could receive the gift of salvation through the ministry, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so she shared her testimony again with her family so that they could hear the message of God's salvation, not just from a strange preacher who had shown up to preach a sermon, but from a family member they would see every day. Do you hear the words of judgment today? I mean, maybe they sound harsh. Honey, I can tell by the way that you're living, you're not a Christian. 
Honey, your love of other people's opinions shows that you've rejected God. But you also hear the words of salvation today. Find eternal life in the Son of God who gave his life for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of our Savior, for the clarity of his message that he came, yes, and in his coming he brings judgment, but he came to offer us salvation, the hope of eternal life. Lord, give faith to those that are gathered here that they might trust in you, they might believe in your name. Father, we ask that we would receive the gift of salvation through Jesus, our Savior. Lord, make us bold in our testimony for you as we gather with family, as we sit around the table, let us share of what you have done for us. Not merely words of condemnation, but words of gospel hope and forgiveness. Lord, today, make us bold in announcing Jesus. Tomorrow, let us take a, a public stand for the hope of salvation. Lord, give us the boldness to share the good news. And Lord, give faith to those whose hearts are hard, that they might be given a new life, eternal life, through Jesus our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.